Uh, if you are here for the first time, we're so thankful that you're here with us today. It is, today is a very special day for us for several reasons. Uh, well, one, we're doing baptisms today, which is a lot of fun. Yeah, praise the Lord. This is an exciting day for us to see people go from death to life through the picture of baptism. But also because today is Mother's Day. And to all the mothers out there, I want to say happy Mother's Day. You know, today is the day that uh, we get to mark on our calendar each year just to simply honor the mothers in our life. And I know for me and my family, both my own mother and the mother of my children, they are both, they are deeply loved. You know, I know for Kelly, everybody in the family, especially now as they're younger, they all want their mama. And y'all, she is a very loved woman in the Hovis household, and she is very aware of it. And so we're going to lunch, we're going to go out to lunch today and celebrate her, and then daddy's taking the kids, and mommy's going to go take a nap on the beach, I think. Uh, But the point I want to make here is that there is something incredibly special about the God-given gift of a mother. You know, mothers are an incredible picture of of sacrificial love and care. There's something very special our kids and those around us get to see about the love of God and the patient kindness of God through their mother. And again, I know for for many of us, our mothers will always have a very special place in our heart that can't be really replaced by anybody else. And as I say that, I also know there are also things about Mother's Day for many that just makes today a bit more difficult. Maybe there's a level of grief or loss or maybe some disappointment that can come from many on Mother's Day. And so today is a day that we as a church do what the scriptures call us to do, and we grieve with those who grieve, and we rejoice with those who rejoice, and we celebrate and honor with those who, who give celebrate, celebration and honor. Both are good, and they're right, and they're God-honoring. And as we think about our mothers in relation to our Ephesians passage today, as we look at the theme specifically of relationships, I don't think this tension should surprise us, because this isn't just true with our mothers, But this tension of rejoicing and honoring and grieving and also longing, it's in all of our relationships, every single one. Every relationship we have in this life is filled with both incredible blessings and also things that remind us that things in this world aren't the way they're supposed to be. Like the world in which we live in is simultaneously, at the same time, at all times, both pointing to a good and loving and all-wise creator and displaying God's beauty, while at the exact same time, we can also see that we still live in a Genesis Genesis 3 world that is broken and distorted by sin and evil, and it grieves us. And so as we think about this with relationships, I think we can agree that there's not a single relationship on this planet that is strife and pain-free. Like, the reason we can know this is true with 100% confidence is because there's not a single person on this planet that is 100% free from sin, which includes you and me. And what we know to be true is that the only person to ever walk this planet free from sin is Jesus Christ. And so what that means is that every relationship under the sun in this world has the opportunity for beauty and goodness, but will also, without question, it will inevitably be strained in some way because of the lingering effects of sin. And mamas, you know this with your kids, like you didn't have to teach them to sin. Yes, those two-year-olds, they're fun and cute, but I think we can all agree they need to work on their manners a little bit. And I don't know about you, but I don't know many four-year-olds that have just mastered self-control in their life. Like, we don't have to be taught to have a strong desire to want what we're not supposed to have. 
This is just a natural part of every human experience because of the fall of man. And in my own personal opinion, one of the greatest evidences of the reality of sin is just found in our relationships with one another. I mean, we see sin's effects in friendships, in marriages, with parents and children at work. It's all around us. Arguments and disagreements happen. Desires compete with one another. And miscommunication and misunderstanding can happen far too easily. And all the mamas in the room, I think, can say amen to that. And yet the beauty of the gospel, as we've seen over the past few weeks, is that God is reshaping us and renewing us into a new creation. Moms and dads, you too. Like what a joy you have to be a major tool, to be a major part of the process in the hands of God to reshape our children into God's new creation. And again, today is not just for mothers, but this is true for every single relationship in our lives, all of us. Our family relationships, marriage relationships, friendships at work. You know, as soon as we hand over our life to Jesus, over a lifetime, God begins to then unravel and kind of untangle our life that is connected to this world that is twisted by the devil and sin and evil. And then over a lifetime, God reties and reshapes our life to Jesus and his ways. And no, it's not easy. And it often doesn't happen overnight. But for those who are in Christ and giving their life to the Lord and walking with the Lord, God does change us. You know what it often looks like? It looks like two steps forward and one step back. Three steps back, two steps forward, and on and on. And it also often takes an entire community investing in one another to see change. This is why the community of the church is so beautiful. Like God has placed all of us together as a means of becoming more like Jesus together. Like, we're not just a place to be friends. That's not what we are. Yes, that happens, but even more so, we are a means to be transformed. Now, I have no doubt in my mind, if you are fully invested here in the life of our church community, invested in relationships, being relationally connected to people, with serving, and fully invested into a city group, I have full confidence that God will change you. Because God's means for changing us and growing us, it happens through God's word and prayer, but it also happens through relationships, which also means our relationships, those deeply invested, life-changing relationships, they can get messy at times. And why? Because in those relationships, and really in all of our relationships, our sin, what does it do? It collides with each other. It pricks and it prods and it pokes each other. It maybe even stabs each other. You know, when we get poked and stabbed by sin, it can really, really hurt. But yet, part of God's plan for our life, part of God's plan to change us and make us more like Jesus is for God to renew and to restore our relationship, which is our main idea for today. God renews our relationships. You know, I don't know what relationships you have in your life that come with strain or tension, that maybe you just know a little bit more today that maybe you haven't just been lightly poked by the sin of someone else, but maybe it feels like you've just been punched in the face or full-on just stabbed by their sin. If that's you, I pray that you would listen up because what we know to be true is that as followers of Jesus, there is hope for redemption. Like there's hope for renewal. Those scrapes and bruises and deep wounds that happen through the sin of another, God, our loving medic, you know what he does? He loves to bring healing and help into those places. 
And, I, and no, I don't know when or how or what it will look like. And no, it may not look like what we want it to or, or for how we may have dreamed it for it to be in this life. But what we know today and what we can cling to is that as Jesus followers, we do in fact have hope that God will make all things new. And what I love about the Bible is that it doesn't just tell us that God is in the business of renewing our relationships, but it gives us a detailed map and an outline of how he does it. I mean, can you just imagine it with me being dropped off at the airport, just with a ticket to go to a brand new city in a totally different country, and all of your friends are just kind of cheering you on. They're excited for you, like your life is about to be totally changed for the good, and they give you a huge hug, and everyone's crying, and they're emotional and saying goodbye, and you're filled with hope and a promise, and your heart is just so warmed, like you're just on cloud nine, overjoyed with excitement for the incredible change that's about to take place, and you're standing there with a ticket in your hand to this brand new country that is connected to hope and change, and then you realize... Oh, wait, but what do we do when I get there? Like, I've got a ticket, I've got a promise, but I don't really have a plan. Or I don't have any idea what this change and what this hope looks like. And you're sitting there asking yourself, like, am I just going to go to the beach and meditate? Or am I going to go to a fitness boot camp? Or is this like a rehab facility? Or am I going to go pick up a really big check with a bunch of money? Or is someone even going to pick me up? from the airport, like what's going to happen here? And I think we can agree that having a plan and a picture of what this change and promise looks like would be very helpful. It would help us to know that we're on the right track. And that's what our text today does for us with our relationships. It paints a picture of what our new relationships are supposed to look like. So today and also next week, we're going to be back in the same 29 verses that we were in last week, Ephesians 4.25, all the way to Ephesians 5.21, but this week we're highlighting the theme of relationships in those 29 verses. And no, I'm not going to read the whole thing again today, but rather we'll walk through different parts of the text and I'll highlight those verses that will help us with a plan for renewal in our relationships. We're going to have three points, sing, number one, our relationships are under attack. Number two, our relationships are desperate for love and grace. And number three, God-honoring relationships are a gift from the Lord. And again, this is not specific to any type of relationship. This is for all relationships. Marriages, friendships, work relationships, family relationships, all of them. And then in two weeks from now, we'll start to get into more specifics, uh, looking at marriage. And then the following week, uh, we're going to look at parenting this Sunday following Kids Week. And in these 29 verses we're studying over these three weeks, there's a long list, as we've seen, as we, saw, as we read last week, of the do this and don't do this. Like, stay away from this and be more like this. And that we're going to really dive into more of those do's and don'ts, maybe probably ne more next week, that I know is going to be really helpful for us. Like, next week's sermon, I really believe, will be a major light bulb moment for transformation in our life. But what we're going to see today, it kind of goes underneath all of the do's and don'ts of our life and shows us much more of a deeper picture of how God renews our relationships. And so that, that said, look at uh, Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, of how God renews our relationships. Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Again, happy Mother's Day. We've got some talk about the devil today. Uh, but how's that for some relational advice? Be angry and do not sin. Like, if we just don't sin, our relationships are going to be far better. It's like, all right, great sermon, it's time for some lunch, okay? But I don't think that's really what Paul is getting at. 
Yes, he said don't sin, and yes, that's good and right advice, but there's more to the story here. Because right before this, as we saw last week, we saw Paul say, be truthful, tell the truth. And then he said, right after that, be angry and do not sin. Again, we have to remember, we're in a long list of do's and don'ts. And I think we should find this very interesting that Paul said to be angry before he said, do not sin. And I think this phrase is so fascinating for several reasons. And first, because saying be angry seems to be the exact opposite of what we should be doing. Like we would think it would say, do not be angry. But that's not what he said. No, Paul said, be angry. And so we need to ask, why did he say that? And when he said that, because Paul knows that things are going to happen in life and in relationships that should make us angry. Like when we see evil in the world, it is good and right to be angry. Our God, who is all good all the time, when he sees uh, evil and sin, he is angered by it which is a display of his goodness. Like we often wrongly think of anger as only a negative emotion, as if we can't be angry or as if we shouldn't be angry. But what Paul is showing us as he quotes David from Psalm 4-4 in the Old Testament is that no, there are things in this world that happen to us or to others that it is good and right to be angry about. Like we should be angry about things like murder and injustice and betrayal and abuse and lying and stealing and cheating and things like the whole industry of pornography just enslaves and degrades men and women and on and on we could go. It is good and right to shake our fist at the grotesqueness of the world and say this is not right. God did not create our world to be this way. I mean, when our spouse or friend or child or family member sins against us, pricking us or maybe stabbing us with their sin, Paul tells us to be angry about it, to not settle for it. I mean, church, may we not grow numb to being sinned against. And may we use the energy and the emotion of our anger to move us to do something to make a good change to it. That's what good anger does, righteous anger. It moves us to fight for good and lasting change. It moves us to seek and push back darkness and to enter into the fight against evil, just as the anger of God moved him to send Jesus to the world. Our good and righteous anger moves us to be agents of change in our broken world. And so when we sin, and, uh, sin uh, when we see sin and evil all around us, be angry about it. Just as God, our good and righteous Heavenly Father, is angry about it. But then, what we can't forget is what Paul says next. He says, and do not sin. In New City, that's the hard part. That's where we often fall short. Because we get angry, and then we sin right back in our anger. We bite back, or lash out, or we degrade, or put down, or heap on shame, lose patience, and on and on we go. And when Paul says, be angry and do not sin... Paul knows very well that we will be sinned against. Like we're going to be pricked and poked and stabbed by sin, and we should be angry about it, but we don't sin in response. No, we kill the cycle and spiral of sin. And what this tells us in our relationships is that sin and evil are real and present, leading us to our first point. Number one, our relationships are under attack. I know I said this last a lot last week, and I'll say it this week too. New City, the devil is a liar and a deceiver. Just like we saw last week, he is constantly whispering lies to us. And some of those lies he whispers to us are done in order to attack the relationships around us that God has designed to show his goodness to the world. Like to show his goodness and love to us. 
The devil hates whatever God loves. And what does God love? Well, God loves marriage. God loves families. He loves friendships, brotherhood, and sisterhood. God loves it when, mo- when you mothers go the extra mo- mile to model patience and grace to your kids. God loves it when you pour out your life as a living sacrifice to your children day in and day out, pointing them to Jesus even in your emotional and physical fatigue. Husbands and fathers, God loves it when you serve your wife and kids and teach your kids the word. God loves it, parents, when we model courage and self-control. God loves it when we show our coworkers what it looks like to honor God with our work. I mean, God loves it when brothers and sisters in Christ are building one another up and spending time together and pointing each other to Jesus and bearing one another's burdens. I mean, he loves it when we serve the church and get into groups and see real change in our life. And so what does the enemy do in all these cases? He does whatever he can to get in the middle of what God is doing that is good and beautiful. The enemy does whatever he can to hinder or stop or get in the way of these God-given relationships, and he tries to distort its beauty. You know, we looked at this verse last week as we were looking at our speech, but it applies here again today. And how does the enemy get in the way of our relationships? Well, look at verse 31. Paul says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. The enemy gets in our relationships with our family and friends by instilling bitterness and wrath and an unrighteous anger in our heart. And it looks like slander and malice. And Paul says, put it away, put it to death, because that's the work of the devil. That's what, he, that's what he, he's doing, what he does best. And so yes, the Christian life, it's filled with joy and a deep satisfaction found in Jesus that we get to share with others in our life and delight in and be satisfied with, but we cannot forget that the Christian life is also a life of war. New City, when we daily remember that this life is full of both love and a deep rest found in Jesus, but yet also at the exact same time a life of war, when we remember that our relationships are fully a part of both of these things, both rest and delight and satisfaction in Jesus and also war, our relationships, they begin to change. Because when our friends or our family members or coworkers sin against us, which, again, it will happen, we can be angry about it as part of the war. And it can move us to action, but yet still have compassion for them as God shows compassion for his people. Church, the enemy will do whatever he can to drive a wedge between any and all relationships that the Lord loves, marriages, friendships, families, all of them. And so may we as a church and as a people just put our stake in the ground and be willing to go to war against the schemes of the enemy and display love and grace of Jesus leading us to number two. Our relationships are desperate for love and grace. New City, if the enemy is out to destroy our relationships through sin and evil, which we know he is, then one of the many ways we combat that is by cutting off the cycle of sin and evil, like that downward spiral that happens with us just in our communication patterns and how we treat one another. Yes, we can be angry, but we do not sin, as Paul said. And then the rest of that verse that we haven't talked about, and this is so important, Paul then says, do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. And so what must we do? We must be committed to reconciliation, to a life of forgiveness and unity. Yes, we can be angry, but we can't stay angry. We can't go to bed angry. Paul said, don't let the sun go down on your anger. 
So we must fight and make it a regular habit to forgive, as Paul said in Ephesians 4.31. He said, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Yes, we're commanded to not sin. But guess what? As we've already established, that's not the world we live in. Yes, we're urged to not sin, and hopefully we will sin less and less as we grow in Christ, but we do still sin. And so what must happen? Even when we're sinned against, we can be both angry and also still display kindness. We can be angry and still display the fruit of the Spirit at the same time. We can be angry and self-controlled and kind and display peace all at the same time. And how do we know this is possible? Because this is the exact character of God. God displays both at the same time. We can also be tenderhearted and we can also forgive. But how is this possible? Because God, through Christ, forgave us. Look what Paul says in Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2. He says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And y'all, this is a special sauce to the whole thing because it's easy to say, just be kind and forgive each other. But we all know this is way easier said than done. No, this is so important. Like, we don't walk in regular and consistent forgiveness. We can't be angry and not sin and display the fruits of the Spirit and be tenderhearted and angry, displaying love and grace all at the same time, day after day, by the power that is within us. We don't have that power. And we also can't do it by first looking to the one who sinned against us. Like, if we focus on the one who poked us or stabbed us with their sin, we'll get angry and then likely, maybe, just poke them right back or stab them right back with our sin. And so how in the world is this even possible? How can we forgive time and time again and offer grace and love time and time again when we're stabbed and scarred by someone else's sin? Maybe time and time again. Like when our friend who doesn't know Jesus continues to demean us or to talk down to us. Or maybe our friend who does know Jesus and who is walking with the Lord. Like, how do we do it? How do we forgive? We look to Jesus. We look to the cross of Christ where God saw us in our own sin, in our own rebellion, where he did not shame us or reject us or lash out at us. But rather, he lashed out and rejected his son Jesus at the cross, where Jesus was pricked and whipped and stabbed by our sin. Jesus was stabbed by the sin of death over and over again so that we could be forgiven forever into eternity. Christian, every day, because of the cross, no matter what you've done, no matter how bad you think your sin may be, because of the cross of Jesus, our sin is totally and completely forgiven. Like, this is incredible good news. This is the gospel. Our forgiveness is not dependent on our obedience and us doing more right than wrong. No, our forgiveness, us being forgiven by God, is dependent on our faith in Jesus, and that's it. Believing that Jesus nailed our sin to the cross and knowing it's gone forever, we're then, forgiven by the, we're, we're, we're then forgiven by God through Jesus forever. Church, this is the gospel. This is our good news. This is what changes our eternity, and this is also what changes us forever. And if you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus where you find eternal forgiveness and new life, I want to call you to do that today. Like, right now. Just say, God, I want to give you my life. I want to be forgiven by the cross. Through, through Christ. And for all those who have surrendered their life to Jesus and who are also struggling to forgive others, like which is probably many of us, please listen to me. Don't first look to the one who is guilty 
And don't first look to the one who stabbed you with their sin. No, but rather look to the one who was not guilty and was stabbed by our sin. Church, first look to Jesus. Now, I know it's so easy in our relationships to point fingers at the other person and say, you did this or you did that. And I'm not saying we sweep things under the rug. No, God wants to keep it in the light. But what I am saying is that we can't forget that our own sin is right there with their sin. Y'all, it is hard to say, you wretched man or you wretched woman, to someone else heaping on shameful condemnation when we're singing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And so how does God redeem and restore relationships? He takes two people who understand their own sin, and he begins to grow the love of Jesus and the grace of Jesus deep down into our hearts and souls. And if someone is not a Christian, we then turn to compassionate, heartfelt gospel proclamation. Just pleading with them, not for our forgiveness. They don't, need, they don't first need our forgiveness. No, they, they need God's forgiveness. And then once they've been reconciled with God, reconciliation with each other is the next step. Plain and simple. When we're missing each other in our relationships, it's because either one or both parties have lost touch in big moments or in little, small, everyday moments of grace, which so easily happens to each of us. And so what does a Christ-honoring relationship look like? What do God-glorifying friendships look like that are being renewed by God? No, they don't look like being free from sin, at least not in this world. No, they look like being filled with grace and forgiveness day after day after day. And believe me, I know forgiveness and reconciliation is hard. And I do want to make a clarifying statement for us to use wisdom and get others involved, especially in abusive relationships. But in most moments, when we struggle to forgive or miss extending grace or in working towards reconciliation, we're driving a wedge between one of the greatest gifts God could give us in a friendship or in a relationship or in a mother or a father or family member, leading us to see number three. God honoring relationships are a gift from the Lord. Listen, I mean, the best relationships and the deepest gifts to us in our lives are not founded on common interests or personalities or life stages. No, the deepest relationships in our lives are the relationships that are bonded together by Jesus. Like when I'm in the Word with someone and when I'm praying with someone and just hearing their heart cry out to the Lord, or when someone is sharing how God is working in their life, whether in pain or in joy, like there is an immediate depth in that relationship that can't be matched through our common appreciation for sports or hobbies or work or any sort of common interest. You know, God has made us to have a depth of friendship and relationship with one another that is to be a gift from God to us. And as I think about this for our church, this is something I have been praying for, and I am continuing to pray for, that the community of our church would find deep and lasting friendships that, would ju- that wouldn't just, we wouldn't just sit beside each other in a service and just cross paths and exchange greetings, but there would be a level of healthy, deep heart and soul dependence on one another that just says, I hear your pain. Like, I'm here for you. You can, you can depend on me, but look to Jesus. He's better. And let's look to Christ, and let's go there together. And no, this is not some ideal world. No, this is the world that God wants us to walk in. This is the world we're to fight for, and the relationships we're to foster. And just being super practical here about how to just foster this here at New City Church. 
I mean, if you're not in a city group, number one, the first thing, the first step, join a city group. This is where this happens. This is where these types of relationships are just mostly fostered. And then number two, like this summer, starting in June, we're all going to be meeting together right here in this room on Wednesday nights, which is a great time to jump in. Like one of the purposes of that time is to begin to foster these relationships. We're going to be talking all summer long about discipleship. And also, thirdly, serving. It's just another way to get in these relationships, serving here on Sundays and also just praying before service. They're all great gifts to us. They help us to foster these relationships. And then lastly, I promise you, if you want to get to know people in our church, offer to help out with Kids Week. If kids aren't your thing, we have multiple ways you can serve over those three days. And if you can only do Wednesday nights because of work, or Wednesday night because of work, come and help on Wednesday night. Like help people get checked in or help set up, whatever it is. All these things you can sign up for at our next steps. But one of the purposes of all of this is to foster relationships that God wants to be a gift in our life. Again, if one of God's major means for change in our life are the relationships in our life, we need to be asking ourselves, who are the people in my life that are having the greatest influence on me? We said this last week with our words, but it's definitely true with the friends in our life. I mean, if we looked at the people we're spending the most time with, we'll see a really good picture of where our life is heading. Again, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. And just ask, are the people in your life, are they white hot for Jesus? Are they running hard after the Lord or maybe for the world? Those that are pursuing Jesus are a gift to you. Spend time with them. Pursue them. And those who are not pursuing Jesus and are not running after the Lord, we need to honestly ask, who is influencing who? I mean, if they're not having a stronger influence, if they're having a stronger influence on your life, and I'm going to say this as lovingly as possible and as direct as possible, you need new friends. If you're around our church long enough, listen, you'll know we are all about spending time with people that are far from God. We want to see many, many, many people come to Christ. But if we're not influencing them for Jesus and they're influencing you for the world, you're essentially showing them that the world is better than Jesus. And you're not helping them. No, you're hurting them. And you need to get out of those relationships and show them that Jesus is better than the world. Paul basically said in Ephesians 5, 6, and 7, don't become partakers with the sons of disobedience because the wrath of God is upon them. Church, that's a heavy statement. That's a massive warning. Who are we partaking with? Who are we being influenced by? Who are we living life with? And do we need new friends? Well, that's exactly what I had to do when I was a junior in high school. I had to make all new friends, and I got ridiculed heavily for it, and it wasn't fun. But I also see this. Still today, my very closest friends, some of the greatest relational gifts in my life are those new friends that I made my junior year of high school. Yes, Jesus changed my life, but you better believe my friends played a major part in that process. It's so true. Show me your friends, and I'll show you your future. And so we need to ask Who are the people in our life that God wants to be a blessing in our life? And then go spend time with those people. So now, just in the last like seven or eight minutes of our time, I want us to look just at a few verses that we looked at last week. Just look at them again. Verses 18 to 21 of chapter 5. Paul says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. 
giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Just like we saw last week in verse 19, Paul said, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Like there is a level of looking to each other, not just as we sing in worship, but also as we engage with one another. Again, there's something special that we have with one another when we can lead each other to worship the Lord, to worship the Lord in thankfulness. And then I want to point out what Paul said in verse 21. He said, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And what I want us to see here is that in those relationships that are a gift, there is a level of deferring to one another. There's a submitting to one another, as Paul says. And this is not like a bow down and kiss the ring, I'm going to twist your arm type of submission, but rather a deferring and an honoring submission. It's a submission that considers the other more significant than yourself. It's a submission that says, my desire is your desire. It's a relationship that looks like both parties not asking, what can I take from this relationship, but rather what can I give to this relationship? That's what healthy marriages and friendships look like. Parents, this is what we want to disciple our kids towards. When friendships go haywire and sour, it's often because the opposite of this happens. When someone says, I'm no longer benefiting from this relationship, and they begin to disengage, that's not a healthy relationship. It never was. A true friend doesn't say, what can you give me, but rather, how can I bless and encourage you? Y'all, relationships get rocky because one or both parties begin to ask and have the expectation that this person is supposed to give me something. And when those expectations aren't met, met, conflict occurs, and the relationships sour. But rather, God-honoring relationships look like both parties, reflecting the life of Jesus to one another, whose life was marked by pouring out and not by what he could take and gain. You see, the life of Jesus was a constant giving of himself to others. And so in turn, may we as a people model and reflect that same life. May we live in our relationship as a constant living sacrifice, seeking to give and bless others in all areas. This is the ideal friendship and relationship when both parties have the attitude of my role is to be the giver and expect nothing in return. And mothers, I think you get this. And you know what? I know. And you know what? I know that we all know. This is just not, as e- this is just not that easy. And it's not always fun. In fact, it can be so draining at times to give and to give and to give and to never receive. And please hear me. I know this is not God's desire for our lives. He did not create us to give only and never receive from others. The fact that we, have the, we, we, we know the struggle of this is the exact reason we know that we were created for it. The fact that we feel lonely at times is proof that we were created for relationships. God made us to have people in our life. God made us to desire life-giving relationships. And so what I'm not saying is to give up and to settle for loneliness. No, God is the giver of all good gifts. He longs and desires to bless his people with good, God-honoring relationships. But what I am saying is that what God also did not create us for was to find our first and primary soul satisfaction from people. I mean, every person in this room can attest that people, they will disappoint us. Guarantee it. Your spouse will disappoint you. Your kids will disappoint you. Your friends will disappoint you. And you better believe your pastors will also disappoint you. God created us for each other. We need each other. We're a gift to each other. 
But yet, at the same time, we're all flawed people. We're not an endless supply of life-giving, soul-satisfying water to quench the thirst of our deepest longings. No, the only one who can fully satisfy us and day in and day out fill the cup of our longings is Jesus. Yes, relationships, they're a gift to us, but they're not the ultimate gift. No, that's Jesus. And if we're looking to a boy or a girl or a spouse or a mom or a dad or a friend to totally fulfill the deepest longings in our hearts, disappointment, it is absolutely guaranteed to be on the horizon. Church, friends and friendships are a good thing in our life. They're gifts to us, but they're not ultimate. So how do we live in relationships that think, I'm always the pursuer. I'm always the one blessing. My role is to always give life first. How do we do this as limited and finite people that have wells that can so easily run dry? Well, how do we do it? We must, day in and day out, go to the well of life that never runs dry. We day in and day out drink deeply and find our soul satisfaction in Jesus first. We sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs, helping our hearts sing with thankfulness, totally satisfied from the Lord, living at the feet of Jesus, being satisfied by God, and in return, out of the overflow of our worship and satisfaction in Jesus, we give and we give and we give. Listen, if your well is empty today, we can't give from an empty well. We need to go to the endless supply of living water that is Jesus. And we fill our well until it's overflowing at the brim, delighting in satisfaction, and then God begins to work. Your city, again, the call today is not to go and be a good friend. The call is not to go and be an awesome mom or dad, and it's not to go be the best husband or wife you can be. No, the call today is to yet again just marvel at the goodness of God. It's to rejoice in the beauty of our Savior Savior, and the forgiveness given at the cross. The call is to rest our hearts in the unlimited joy and gladness that is found through the resurrected Christ. The call is not to go into. No, the call is to worship and delight. And then when we do that, and when those in our life also do that, Relational restoration and renewal, that's the resulting fruit. Church, let's pray. God, you are so kind to us. God, you, you place people in our life to be a blessing to us. God, you have made us to be a blessing to others. But God, my, my prayer is that today we wouldn't just try really, really hard to be a blessing, but that we would just go to Jesus, the ultimate blessing, and just live out of the overflow of what you have done at the cross through forgiveness and grace and kindness. God, we need you, and we're so thankful. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.